I want to make love to your woman and lay her down by the fire and caress your womanly body, make her moan and perspire. Gonna keep those juices flowing, making love, gravy, love, gravy, love, gravy, love, love, love. I guess this is it. I guess, uh, all right, this is Enter VR. I'm Chris Miranda, your host, and today I am joined by the legendary Tim Sweeney. Um, holy moly, and Chris Kramer, would you like to be a part of this? No, okay, Chris. So it's just you and me, and Tim. You and me Tim. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is, uh, and by the way, I apologize, anybody, um, we're recording off of an iPhone. Um, it's, but listen, it's, it's Tim Sweeney, really. Come on, guys. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, um, I have so many questions for you. Um, for One, um, why is it morally imperative that we create the metaverse according to John Carmack? Huh, that, is this a quiz? No, <laughs> I don't know John Carmack's reasoning uh, there. And I think that's a really interesting question. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at attempts to create the metaverse before VR, uh, you have a lot of efforts spanning things like Second Life, um, uh, uh, all the way to things like massively multiplayer games like World of Warcraft or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's really not clear to me exactly what the metaverse ends up being because if we look at the ecosystem, we have a whole bunch of different companies producing uh, this hardware. Each one will uh, presumably create an operating system. And so the question is, will the metaverse be part of the operating system? Will it be an app? Um, how does it come into being, uh, evolving, you know, given the market forces that exist? Because if there's an app, there will probably be a bunch of different apps all uh, wanting to be the metaverse. And some of them will be more chat and social oriented, um, and some will be more game-like. Um, what we've really seen is that games are the predominant form of media that can attract and retain players for long periods of time. Um, you're looking at MMOs, for example. Um, things like Second Life, uh, show that it's actually really quite difficult to build a compelling and enduring experience uh, with uh, purely a user-generated content and chat um, environment without um, some sort of compelling game-like mechanic uh, driving it all. Um, especially how do you curate the quality of content that's created by users. Um, and then you can look at something like Minecraft, which is sort of the closest real analogy we have to the metaverse just today. And the thing that makes that work is the the limited voxel building system means that uh, everybody's building skills are roughly uh, equal. Um, you don't see like a high-end artist create something that is so much better than a novice uh, that their work looks completely silly. Uh, so uh, I think there are a lot of business and social questions uh, surrounding the metaverse, and it's not clear to me that it will evolve quite uh, so simply into one thing. Yeah. What's the most pressing business question in, in the evolution of this metaverse, you think? Well, you know, there's the question of whether it becomes part of an operating system, um, and if it is, uh, you have the worst case scenario really would be that it's balkanized, where you have, you know, three different manufacturers of hardware. We're all walking around wearing, you know, these augmented reality sunglasses, um, and two thirds of the world is invisible to you uh, because they're not writing the right version of the software. Oh, we do not want that. Yeah, um, and so. 
The question is not only uh, who creates the metaverse, uh, but how is it distributed and how is it, does it exist in this multi-platform, uh, multi-vendor ecosystem? Right. Um, my thinking is that you probably will see uh, the emergence of a lot of games that are all somewhere in between being metaverse-like and UMO-like. Um, some will be more games and some will be other social experiences, but there's not necessarily going to be one anytime soon. Yeah. And that raises questions of content interchangeability. Like if I build an awesome avatar, can I bring it from one game or one experience to another? I don't know. I, these uh, things not only don't only evolve according to technical premises, but also to market conditions, which can be quite a lot uglier yeah. uh, than the pure technical conditions. And so what are the, so you talked about business, but what are the social questions that are you know, buzzing through your mind as this thing comes up to fruition? Well, you know, the realist view is that on the internet, you know, the kind of common medium that connects everybody, you see the world's best artists and game creators all out there participating along with an army of tens of millions of trolls. Um, <laughs> and curating the experience to be positive for everyone is a really, really big challenge. Um, and so the big question there for something that's metaverse-like is how do you prevent um, griefers from making the experience uh, really miserable for everybody? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, is are there moderation systems like Reddit which ensure that the best people and content rise to the top, um, or is it some sort of draconian um, policing that happens, mm. or do you construct the rules of the game world um, using game-like systems to ensure that uh, people who do positive things in the world rise to the top and the other people just find it unenjoyable um, to uh, you know, find that their bad behavior isn't rewarded. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of questions around that. I, I would encourage you looking at Second Life as kind of a non-game experiment um, with creating an early metaverse. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it evolved in a lot of ways that were not really positive. You know, it uh, you know, became primarily a, a con user-generated content framework uh, for content that's not really that great. Mm -hmm. So what's the next step? I, I think that there's a lot of things that has to happen there. Yeah. And in this context, what do you envision is Unreal's and Epic's you know, trajectory in the narrative that we're you know, a part of? Uh, I mean, what is the uh, long-term plan? I mean, ten, 10 years down the line, and I dare you to dream, sir. What, where, is, <laughs> where is Epic Games? Where is Unreal? Well, there are two parts of Epic. Um, we make uh, game technology that we provide to everybody, and we make uh, game experiences ourselves. Um, in the overall arc of the industry, you know, our our own games have, even when they've been prominent, like Gears of War in the last generation, they've been a you know small component of the overall industry. Mm -hmm. So I think our biggest opportunity to shape what everybody does and everybody sees is through the engine. Um, you know, we're sort of a, a maker of paintbrushes, which all of these artists throughout the industry use to create their masterpieces, and. Um, so our hope with VR is to play as large a role as possible in uh, providing this content creation ecosystem uh, in the form of the Unreal Engine, which everybody uses to create their apps. And the great thing about that approach is that there's an enormous amount of content interchangeability built into that. Um, you know, taking content built by the Unreal Engine community, applying it to lots of different games in interesting ways, and having uh, models and graphics files and all of these other forms of you know, gameplay affecting behaviors, uh, exchange between products. Um, that's really exciting for me. That sounds like super exciting. And you know, and speaking of, um, I, I was wondering, do you think that we'll ever see visual programming language for VR? For like, so can we transfer blueprints 
blueprint system over to virtual reality and create things with Unreal using VR, inside VR. I mean, is that something that would be too ineffective to create or...? No, I think that is the next step of yeah. editing, um, which we're working on um, and really thinking a lot about. Um, you know, it is inevitably going to be the future that we're creating all of our VR content in VR. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the creation capabilities in, in a VR space are going to be vastly, vastly more powerful and user-friendly than what we have today. I mean, right now the conundrum is we're using a 2D monitor and a mouse and a 2D surface to create 3D objects, and so you're always somewhat um, impaired in your ability to manipulate things directly, whereas you want to reach out and directly sculpt objects in the world. You want to paint on them, you want to reach around and pull control points on objects to create interesting shapes um, you know, without ever leaving the VR environment. That's going to be yeah, really the next big revolution in game engines, um, which we're investing in heavily right now. We haven't been showing anything yet, but you know, uh, this, is, uh, this is at the forefront of our minds right now. Um, and I think that will apply to all forms of uh, game development. There's content creation, uh, but there's also scripting. Yeah. I, mean, I think a lot of aspects of blueprint scripting would work even better in a VR environment um, than on a monitor. Not the least because you have a really awesome high field of view display in front of you um, to manipulate data. Even, you know, just more general programming. Um, in VR, you're still going to have some 2D elements, right? Like, a newspaper in VR is still, like, you know, a sheet of paper that you read, and that's how we're going to present text to people. Mm -hmm. But anything that can be manipulated in 3D to the user's advantage, we will manipulate in 3D. Nice. Blueprints have a lot of possibilities there, and um, being able to deal with multiple layers of connected uh, scripting components, all visual, and I think your ability to visualize what's happening in a complex series of blueprints will be much greater in VR um, than it has been just on a monitor where you're constantly scrolling and zooming in and out. You know, in VR, those functions are not like complicated mouse operations, they're just things you do with your head that you've you know, known how to do since uh, infancy. Very nice. And aside from gaming, what are you personally looking forward to do with virtual reality once, you know, CV2 and HCC Vive number two are out there in the world? Well, there's games, uh, there's content creation, there's experimenting, uh, experiencing movie-like experiences, like Oculus's Henry um, movie, if you call it. Um, they're, they're, it's funny, it's a sort of sort of a non-interactive experience, but I swear there are times that Henry looks over to me and, like, you know, I see the emotion in his face and I have this real connection to him. Yeah. It, it's going to be a complete revolution in all forms of media that are displayed visually. Um, everything will ultimately be affected by VR. Right. It's going to be really cool because, you know, the first, uh, the first consumer releases of these hardware are going to be relatively small, like, on the world scale of things. There are billions of smartphones, but, you know, how many VR devices will ship uh, in 2016? Mm -hmm. uh, millions, maybe 10 million, maybe 20 million, I don't know what it is, but it's not a huge number, and so there's going to be this early adopter audience who's the very first to experience it, and yeah. they're going to have an amazing time, uh, you know, just uh, being a very, very early part of this revolution. I think the change of VR compared to previous forms of media is bigger than cinema or television or any of these other uh, things before it. Yeah. Let's get speculative here, because I want to get your insights on what you think will be the future of mobile VR versus PC VR and you know as, as people who are listening to this who might be um, putting their business plans down on the line for this I mean you know where do you think these industries will go and I mean and if you could give advice to someone who's on the fence between mobile or PC 
I mean, what would you say? Well, yeah, there's mobile PC and there's also console with Sony Morpheus. Um, right. Yeah, I think that really one maxim that's been proven in the industry is that there's a huge base of gamers who are early adopters of technology. They will buy hardware that gives them a gaming benefit long before mass market consumers will buy them. And uh, you know, if you look at the way the PC market developed uh, and reached a few hundred million people, um, gaming was essential to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only when you got super convenient consumer form factors like the iPhone mm-hmm. um, that everybody had a computing device in their pocket. But I wouldn't underestimate the ability of poor gamers to fund the early development of this industry. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the thing that's missing from the VR industry right now is it's uh, you know a full economic uh, loop here uh, mm-hmm. where developers can build VR experiences, uh, sell them to consumers, make money that enables them to pay uh, to hire more people and fund the development of their future VR experiences. Once we have a base of gamers willing to pay money for this stuff, a lot of the things... Uh, you know, the drive an economy are just going to happen automatically, and that's going to drive growth. Um, I'm most confident in, um, like, people who spend money on hardware and gaming mm-hmm. uh, spending money on VR. Mm-hmm. And that says, uh, in my view, that the hardcore PC audience will drive this first and foremost. Yeah. The first 20 million units of this will be driven uh, by PC and console, you know, so Sony Morpheus. Yeah. Uh, Console used to be a huge leap, you know, an indie developer would never even think of building a console game a few years ago, but now actually, you know, you build a great uh, indie game for PC, it's pretty easy to move it to PlayStation 4. Um, Unreal Engine 4 supports it, it's a porting target, you have a few conversations with Sony, and you get the SDK and you're up and running. Yeah. Um, so, my view is to look to that market first and foremost, yeah. um, and it ultimately, by the time this technology has expanded and become more convenient and it's reached... 5 billion people, that's going to be a mobile experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But to get there, I would focus on the gamer, the serious gamer base first. Very smart there. Let me, uh, how much time do you have left? Um, I I can go for hours, but I know you can, Mm -hmm. and I understand. Uh, Yeah, I can go through around uh, another 15 minutes. Yeah, uh, more than 15 minutes. Okay, sure. Well, all right, follow me down the rabbit hole really quick. Because I have this theory, or I have these thoughts about how how virtual reality will really sort of... uh, save humanity from this, un, uh, this this thing that most people aren't really paying attention to, and I think it's the artificial intelligence economy, um, wherein you have uh, magazines like The Economist predicting that by 2050, 47% of all American jobs are going to be automated. And so you have the self-driving cars coming in, and you have neural net algorithms taking over, you know, doing diagnoses better than doctors. And, and so you're, we're seeing, I think, a movement towards, you know, a, a point where you know, what are people going to do? And we're not getting any, any less populated. And so my theory, the solution is, you know, using a metaverse economy to make a counterweight. Because honestly, it's not the AI that worries me. It's how human social structures will react to this, you know, eventuality. And so in that sense, I mean, what do you think? Is that at all in your radar? Because we are in the rabbit hole, but is that something that's in your radar, like, you know, the, this progress of technology and how VR can intersect it eventually. Yeah, you know, I've long believed that the virtual economy will someday grow to a larger size than the real economy. Um, and you know, trends like VR and augmented reality are going to drive that, as well as the automation uh, that's happening. And 
the cool thing about that is it preserves an economy that everybody's participating in. Um, I'm very scared of the prospect of, uh, you know, a large portion of humanity uh, not being able to get work because automation uh, taking over that, taking over. Um, at that point, like, how does the world function? If it were like medieval times, uh, then you would have people who, because they're not producing economic value, are at risk of not being able to buy food and starve. Mm-hmm. Or you have social revolutions and things like that. But mm-hmm. I think already we're seeing a huge portion of the people in the world, you know, even ordinary smartphone owners, uh, kids and grandmothers included, um, are spending money in these games. And once once you evolve away from these, you know, kind of overly greedy free-to-play games where all of the money is just sucked up by the game developer towards more of a Valve type of model. Where Valve, the awesome thing about Valve is they create an economy that everybody participates in. You can play the game and, you know, play their games like CSGO, get stuff. You can sell it to other players. You can build user-generated content using, you know, real-world tools, put it into the game and get paid for it. There are a lot of ways to not just buy stuff, um, but to pay each other. And so... It's a self-sustaining economy, and once you have something like that, it is a potential substitute for um, the real-world economy. And it's a way that people, you know, whether or not their jobs are automated away, will be able to play and enjoy and have fun and produce value, um, regardless of uh, of whether they're working like some physical manufacturing instrument yeah. um, in their day-to-day jobs. Um, and I think that's a that's a really exciting prospect uh, for the future of the world to me. And the great thing about the virtual economy is that there's really no cost to the supply of items um, other than the manpower that goes into creating them. Um, there's not like, you don't have to build mines and extract you know, rocks from the earth and turn them out into chemical elements um, to build something. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, there's really the potential for unlimited growth in that space. Um, and, yeah. I tend to be an optimist about the future of uh, human structures and civilization. As crappy as uh, the political landscape is in America today, uh, I tend to be a long-term optimist um, and think that you know we are approaching uh, with all this automation um, and the advent of the virtual economy a, a, way, a place where a huge portion of humanity, hopefully eventually all of it, will be able to live um, in very good conditions and produce value and participate in the economy, mm-hmm. um, whether or not they are, you know, a, an engineer or a geologist or uh, some operator of physical stuff. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I, and that, I mean, that's, um, I, re- I like that, your answer. Ultimately, I think, you know, if, if we open up this universe, this metaverse, I think, um, you know, and we, we have nothing to do, um, in this universe, so to speak, we would have the uh, ability to find the thing or here's the thing here's the thing um, when there's nothing else to do because all the robots are doing all the jobs I ask myself alright so I guess what I'm going to do is look for the thing that gives me meaning and you would have this universe this virtual world virtual universe to you know do that through um, but going back a little bit more to AI um, how do you think Unreal Engine could leverage um, AI or, or deep nets or uh, neural nets or those sorts of uh, you know subjects is that is that something that like for example sorry to interrupt I'm thinking uh, of having an experience where I would have a sort of Cortana character you know yeah. just take in all my information and learn from me and eventually just be like my personal assistant slash girlfriend. 
Yeah, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed uh, to not have a good answer to that. <laughs> I think that is the biggest problem outstanding for game developers. Um, when we go to create physically realistic characters for games nowadays, um, there's absolutely no real AI driving it. Um, we motion capture a lot of real human movement and a lot of facial movement um, and a lot of voice data, and we splice it together into snippets, uh, which we combine together to you know, represent gameplay. But there's no real intelligence to it. And when we talk about AI in games, there are state, uh, you know, state graphs uh, for decision making, and then there are navigation networks to tell the AI how to get around physical space. Um, but there's nothing resembling uh, the sort of uh, you know, deep learning um, that's now being applied to a lot of problems of computing, like you know, Google search and image recognition um, and so on. Uh, that's really the next big frontier in game development, is to actually go away from all of these you know, silly, very shallow heuristics uh, we're using it to create gameplay and purely physically-based motion capture data and actually try to simulate intelligence um, to some real extent and combine it together uh, in a way that makes sense in-game. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like there's a threshold of knowledge that we need to have to do it well. Mm-hmm. and. If we try to do that with less than that threshold of knowledge, the results is going to be crappy and inferior to what we're currently doing. But I think we're going to hit a point eventually where those approaches just become vastly superior to mm-hmm. everything we're doing. Because the problem with like a Call of Duty enemy is they're programmed to handle a bunch of specific situations, but they don't handle the general case. You can't go up and have a conversation with them or you know do anything that, that requires them thinking beyond what they were initially programmed to do. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what deep learning is supposed to solve, is the general case and not a series of specific cases kind of shoestring together. Right. So uh, I saw a post on Reddit, and uh, Reddit doesn't lie, that by 2025 we're going to have a virtual life form so of some sort. Is that, is that sort of where we're headed? Is that, is that, is that too close uh, from now, or is it going to take longer for something like that to manifest itself? Well, that's really the, the question we've just been talking about. Yeah. It's unclear when that happens. Um, you know, it is, I think, a critical mass phenomenon. Once we have a certain amount of building blocks, then it will be pretty obvious how to construct that right right then. But right now, we have no idea. Yeah. Uh, though we can map out individual neurons in your brain, we have no idea how the, everything works together to yeah. uh, produce consciousness and, uh, you know, natural language, uh, speech, and recognition, and uh, right now it's just a bunch of silly hacking. Uh, so I feel like we're that the answer to that question depends on algorithms that have not yet been invented. Um, and so it's, Moore's Law doesn't apply, right? <laughs> That's a challenge. Uh, and it's going like, to be the striking problem in computer graphics pretty soon because it's directly related to Uncanny Valley. Once you try to simulate a general AI in a game, mm-hmm. then if they're not using just the right facial expressions and the right movements, and they're going to look much worse uh, than, than something that's not even trying to do that at all. Yeah. Um, so uh, we will see. It's funny with rendering because, you know, simply producing realistic-looking pixels is a matter of brute force computation. We know the rendering equations, we know the laws of physics, and we can produce a physically perfect scene if you give us enough computing power, but it's, that's not the case with uh, AI yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, let me ask you really quickly, um, and this is why I ask you. I like you guys a lot, so I'm going to ask you hard questions because otherwise okay. I won't do. I'm not doing you any favors. How do you plan on 
Um, and, and do you plan on catching up with other, not to be named, game engines market share in terms of their de developer base? Um, I, I know you guys put Unreal out for free, which is amazing. Um, but what other sort of strategies do you have in line to um, close that gap with developer base? Well, I'm not sure if there is a gap. Um, you know, since we made Unreal Engine 4 free mm -hmm. um, earlier this year, gosh, in about seven months, we've had over a million new developers come in and choose Unreal. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if you look at that and compare that to the number of users who tried Unity over all time, certainly they have a large number, but we also had over a million users uh, in the Unreal Engine 3 ecosystem in the past days, so it's not clear that there's a historic gap there. And from the very beginning, we at Epic have always been focused on having our engine solve the really hardest problem of game development. Mm -hmm. And the hardest problem is not starting. Mm -hmm. It is incredibly easy to start a project right now. Mm -hmm. You can do it with Unity, with Unreal, with Game Maker, with a variety of other solutions. Um, it's far harder to actually ship a game. Yeah. And then what's vastly harder than that is shipping a game that achieves commercial success. Right. And we, we put everything into helping developers achieve commercial success. You know, with leading-edge graphics features um, you know, by providing developers with full source, which enables them to overcome any hurdles uh, that they're running into when they're trying to ship their game. Uh, you know, any one bug anywhere, you have the power to fix it. You have the power to debug the full code base. Um, you have a set of tools and workflow and source control methodologies that can scale up to very large projects. You know, there are projects with hundreds of developers using Unreal now. Um, and so, it's an engine that's really optimized for that commercial success factor and an engine that's designed so that a developer over the course of their careers will never outgrow it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we always have this question like, should we introduce C Sharp into Unreal? It would certainly make it more accessible and easier to start projects with it. Will it make it easier to ship mm. a commercially successful game? We concluded no. You know, there's a scripting language with a factor of 20 overhead compared to C++. Um, that makes it impossible to debug your game code, you know, in combination with your engine code, especially when your engine is closed source. Um, a lot of the things that make it easier to start game development are, you know, directly opposed to shipping a, a successful project. And yeah. so, you know, I feel confident with the position we are, and I think uh, our business model in terms of empowering um, game developers to build projects that build an industry. Um, I think will prove to be uh, the more enduring one mm -hmm. um, in the long run. Mm -hmm. But it is, uh, it is really interesting. And uh, right now, there's a, it's a more competitive time in um, game engines than ever before. Um, Unity is doing some amazing stuff, reaching some huge audiences. We're doing some amazing stuff, mm -hmm. pushing the leading edge here with VR um, and uh, with tools and uh, photorealism. It's a, it's a really interesting space to be in. It's definitely the most exciting time. Oh, yeah, it definitely is. Last couple questions. Let's jump back into the rabbit hole. Let me ask you about wetware. Um, and there's another uh, dare to dream sort of question. You know, what do you think is going to be the most profound effects uh, virtual reality will have on human behavior, on social, large macro scales, and on individual scales? I can speak personally that the smartphone has changed me. I never would have thought I'd be Facebooking on the toilet at the age of 26, 27, and I'm not going to stop. So, how is VR going to? Do you think, you know, changed the way people? behave, react, treat each other? Well, I think that the most profound thing is it will make it much easier to have a personal connection with somebody who's not right there in the room. Right. You know, 
I guess the telephone was really the first step towards really doing that. Like the fact that you could be hundreds of miles away from somebody and actually have a conversation with them was huge. But having the sense that they're physically present in the room with you um, and you can do everything there but touch them, that's going to be really, really game-changing. Um, I think that's going to also be economizing. Um, the number of times you need to jump on an airplane or drive, sit in a car and drive all the way you know, across the country to be with somebody, uh, it's going to be greatly reduced. Um, it will enable us to operate a lot more efficiently while you know, meeting our, our social needs. Um, it's very hard to predict beyond that. I, I have the impression that there is such a revolution there in social technology that's going to lead to consequences that are not first order, but are second and third order. They're far greater than anything we've contemplated. Um, but don't know what they are. Um, I don't claim to be a, a sort of visionary. Um, but uh, it will be very interesting to see. Certainly it will blur the line between reality um, and computing in a way that's uh, greatly exceeds anything before. You know, I was really struck by the. Oops, I was really struck by this. Uh, I was really struck by this YouTube video where somebody hands a magazine to like a two-year-old girl, and she picks it up, and like, she's moving her hands around it, and she's like shaking it. She's frustrated. She thinks it's a broken iPad, um, and yeah, that is absolutely nothing compared to uh, what a kid will experience growing up um, with virtual and augmented reality. Yeah. How long before Unreal Engine can cross the uncanny valley? You know, I mean, it's only going to get better and better graphically. Um, and I and I wonder, you know, what are the Gordian knots? What are the challenges to turn Unreal Engine as close to reality as? I mean, I might be in a simulation right now. It's it might be Unreal Engine. I don't I don't know. It might be the fourth generation Oculus Rift. But I mean, what do you envision, or what it's the what does it look like? Well, right now, I think that all of the graphical components are in place yeah. to achieve graphical realism now and it, further problems are just reduced to uh, computing power. Um, the problem is animation of humans. Um, that is that is the simulation of artificial intelligence uh, that we've been talking about. Until you can actually simulate human thought, I don't think you can capture human emotions and facial emotions realistically, other than through brute force motion capture of a linear series of uh, you know dialogues. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, that's a big open problem. I feel like it might take a decade or it might take more. Mm -hmm. um, it's possible that it won't even be solved in our lifetimes. It might be that there's something magical to the process of human thought um, that isn't captured by you know, the, uh, the configuration of a small number of neurons alone um, that will defy our, our ability to uh, pick apart for a very long time. Crazy, yeah. Last question. What made you want to make your first game? What motivated you? And what's still driving you to be part of this industry? You know, I've always, I've always loved programming more than anything else, more than even playing games. Um, and, uh, I re gosh, I, I was programming really hardcore for about 10 years before I released anything. Um, I must have put in, like, 15,000 hours of programming uh, while I was in uh, elementary school through, uh, through college. Um, but games are the most fun type of programming. The fact that you can write code and then bring something to life and then actually play it and interact with it feels feels like you are physically creating a world um, that's your world that nobody else uh, has experienced before. That's a really magical feeling. Um, and, you know, I can see why there are millions of indie developers out there now participating in this because the, the thrill of it is just so, so incredible. Mr. Team Sweeney, I, uh, I like to thank you for your time. You have been a true scholar and gentleman of virtual reality and the proto-metaverse. Um, I, I, again, if you ever have time to come back again, uh, I'd love that so that we can do it in a more 
soundproof room. Uh, but but again, thank you so much for your time. I what an honor. Oh my god. Yeah. I feel like a fanboy. Like oh my god. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Awesome.